3: I'm Paul New. And I'm Colleen Sterling. Welcome to Ask the AMPs from AOPA.
2: On Ask the AMPs, uh, we take your toughest maintenance questions and we try to solve them. So if you have a question, please reach out to us at podcasts at AOPA.org.
0: And if you like the show, make sure to follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Don't miss an episode.
2: And if you'd like to get on our email list uh, for our um, monthly newsletter and uh, periodic maintenance stories, the easiest way to do that is to text the word savvy, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777. And a little email bot will ask you for your email address and add you to the list. That's Text the word SAVVY, S-A-V-V-Y, to 33777 to get on the list.
0: So I've had some interesting requests. Two interesting things are happening. One is, now that I have space behind me, all the guys in the shop want to do weird things, you know, while the podcast is going on. And I've had customers ask, if I show up on podcast day, can I stand behind you and wave? Really? Oh, yeah, yeah.
4: (laughs) So
0: I may have to put up that ugly welding curtain back there, you know, or something. I did have another interesting thing. Don't know if this is all that interesting, but I received from someone I've never heard from before, and I don't want to hold the whole thing up here, an actual letter written on paper requesting uh, some help on a P210. I've never gotten a letter in writing (laughs) In the mail, <laughs> in an envelope, with a stamp, in the mailbox. <laughs> wow. It was, and this is this from funny. a
2: podcast listener?
0: No, no. This is just from somebody with a 210, and they need some help, and uh, someone referred them to me. And he shows a, not only phone numbers and address and everything, but also an email address. So he's, Oh, very good. he's somewhat tech-savvy. I'm just wondering why he didn't go to the website and send it
2: there. So hmm. I just thought that was kind of hilarious. Maybe he's... Just tech savvy enough to read emails, but he hasn't quite gotten to the point of being able to send them I don't know
0: I don't know I'll let you know when it, I'm going to respond to him here after the podcast we'll we'll see how he goes but That's it's a, it'd be a great charming. question for the group though
3: you know I've been writing a lot of holiday cards across the holidays, and I find that my penmanship is awful because I'm so used to typing that the act of writing is just yeah. um foreign isn't it a dying horrible definitely
2: a dying
0: art yeah i The nice thing about being a guy generally is. (laughs) Yes. I can't wait. I'm dying to hear the end of this. Uh,
3: Give us your tips, Paul.
0: (laughs) Most people don't expect a guy to send cards, Christmas cards, and that sort of stuff. So we generally don't send out a whole lot of, of cards. I don't know. It's just, yeah, it's just like, man, that's just an awful lot of work. And. You know, and then now everybody's left with all these cards they don't know what to do with. So anyway, that is one of the few perks of being a guy. Oh. Low expectations. Oh it's like it's like, you know, when you <clears throat> when the kids are little, mom takes the kids to the grocery store, they all have to be dressed and cleaned and all that kind of stuff. Dad takes the kids to the to the grocery store. They can be in their diapers and a dirty t-shirt, and it's perfectly okay. And everybody just looks around and says, Oh, isn't that cute? He took the kids to the grocery store and let mom stay at home. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's two perks.
3: Oh. <laughs> okay. Our first question is from Pat, who is perilously close to overhauling his engine. <laughs> Go ahead, Pat. We want to talk you back from the brink. <laughs> Off the ledge. Off the ledge.
1: Well, I appreciate that. Thanks very much for having me on. And by the way, thanks very much for what you do. This is really, the podcast you put on has really become an institution, I think. (laughs) At any rate, our Diamond Star just went into the shop uh, for its annual inspection. And the shop says that one of the cylinders, cylinder three is not airworthy after doing the compression check and borescope examination. The engine is a Lycoming IO 360 M1A the original engine on the DA40, uh, the airplane was built in December of 2003, so it's 19 years old. <clears throat> the engine is 2,400 and the attack time is 2,000, so the engine's well beyond the recommended TBO. The shop says they aren't comfortable replacing a cylinder on an engine that is this far beyond the TVO. Uh, I'll read you some of their, the exact words they sent me in an email. Uh, The compressions are all very good, except for cylinder number three, which is 42. The lower spark plugs looked okay, but all had evidence of oil presence. On the bore scope, all the cylinders had more than the normal oil present in the cylinder bores, on the piston and the cylinder head. Uh, The number three exhaust valve is showing signs of heat distress on two sides with valve rocking on and off the seat, indicating a worn exhaust guide. Uh, The shop owner says his assessments, it's time for an overhaul. Obviously, number three needs to be replaced or repaired, but all cylinders are contributing to the oil consumption and color and smell of the oil. The bore scope shows no cross-hatching left, and number four is showing some lengthwise scratches in the bore. So Glenn says since the engine is 20 years old now, and over TBO, it would not be a candidate for a simple cylinder replacement. We feel there's too great a risk to the internal crankshaft bearings, saddles, and bearings getting disturbed. This could cause a spun bearing and an unintended engine failure. The risk of this happening is too great, especially on a high-time engine. I'm pretty much of the philosophy that you espoused—that I'd much rather replace a cylinder if everything else looks okay. I have recently put an overhauled engine in our Baron because uh, the camshaft. Heads falling on it that didn't meet the specs of Continental. And so we wound up getting an overhauled engine from um Western Skyways. But in the case of the Diamond Star, which is uh, is there some way of getting around the the bad cylinder, maybe all bad cylinders, and full disclosure, we we went ahead and ordered an engine <coughs> from like Homing, which uh If you can convince me otherwise, I'm sure we could sell very easily. (laughs) So what do you think? We'll try to convince you otherwise.
2: (laughs) You know, this is the kind of stuff that just drives me (laughs) up the wall. And and, and I I have run into this. We're not comfortable replacing a cylinder on an over TBO engine before. So that's not unique to this shop. But it's just such absurd nonsense. Let's dissect a couple of these things. The, the, the first notion that somehow or other a high-time engine is more likely to have a spun bearing after a cylinder change, that is utter nonsense. There's absolutely no uh, engineering basis for, for a statement like that. The bearings have steel shells that don't wear, okay? they have wear surfaces uh, bonded onto them they're, they're trimetal bearings but the backing of the bearing which is what holds the bearings in place and, and is responsible for the bearing crush is steel and it doesn't wear and a 4000 hour engine has the same bearing crush as a as a 50 hour engine it it just that the notion that you're more likely to have a spun bearing on a high time engine after a cylinder change doesn't make any sense at all. Now I have seen spun bearings after top overhauls where the shop did not take the proper precaution of using torque plates and so on. I've never seen a spun bearing after the change of a single cylinder, because one of the basic rules about avoiding spun bearings is that you never want to torque-relieve more than one pair of through bolts at a time. Well, if you're only changing one cylinder, you're only torque-relieving one pair of through bolts. So you don't really need to take any special precautions. So, I mean, that that's just nonsense. And four-cylinder-like homings, we frequently see them go to four or 5,000 hours. The bottom ends are almost indestructible with the exception of the uh, possible spalling of the, of the cam and lifters due to disuse or, or living in a high-corrosion environment. That's always the risk when you remove a cylinder. One of the bad things about removing a cylinder is you get to look at the cam, and you yeah. might not have <laughs> to see.
3: Keep your eyes closed um, when you take it off. So, You'll be okay. So
2: my advice to you, well, first of all, you may have to go to a different shop, because it sounds like your shop is committed to uh, euthanizing this engine, whether it needs it or not that they just, you're probably not going to dissuade them from that. So you may have to, you may have to go someplace else. I don't know, but certainly what I would do is the first thing I would do is I would try to lap the exhaust valve and and see if you can get the compression back up to where it ought to be without removing the cylinder. If the compression is being lost out the exhaust valve, which sounds like, sounds like it is. Yeah. That valve looks like a perfect candidate for lapping and it probably wouldn't take very much to restore the compression.
3: What what is your oil consumption you didn't mention?
1: I'm not sure that. It's nothing unusual. I mean it's it's probably in the range of a quarter or 8 or 10 hours. Oh, that's wow. awesome. Oh,
3: jeez. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it sounds like they don't want to pull a cylinder cuz they're worried about disturbing the bearings. But maybe you can convince them to lap them instead and and nurse it along and just take it year by year and see how it goes.
2: Now, the the other issue is, you know, there's uh, no crosshatch left, which is no surprise. Yeah. You no. Know? <laughs> uh, any high-time engine doesn't matter. A crosshatch left. Um, but as long as the oil consumption is acceptable, which it sounds like it is, um, it's nothing to worry about. Also, yeah. oil puddling in the cylinder is not it's an normal. airworthiness issue unless... It's so bad that you're you having a pulling problem. Yeah. But if the engine is operating normally, uh, the lack of crosshatch and the oil puddling are are basically non-issues.
3: I mean, having having run my engine, my IO360 past well past TBO, past where you are, I started to have oil, I started to have not morning sickness, but oil in the cylinders, so a little bit of hard starting. So it's it's a geriatric engine. It's kind of like as we get older, it's you know hurts to get out of bed, you know. So, but it's not as Mike says. It's not an airworthiness issue. It's yeah. not terms for euthanization. So if you can convince oh, them, I, was,
2: I thought I was the only one that it hurts to get out of bed. I'm, I'm oh. glad to hear that there are other people with the same issue. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. The, I, I mean, I'm not seeing any valves that look exciting, and uh, certainly it's an excellent candidate for lapping in place and I almost guarantee that it would restore the compression to high 60s, low 70s if you did that.
3: It is so nice to keep running the engine that you have confidence in that you know like the back of your hand. It's not good to switch to something new because it invites all kinds of potential problems, ADs, you know, uh, Infant mortality issues where the engine, you know, fail in the first hundred hours. I I love running my engine um, for years and years and knowing exactly what I'm getting.
0: Yeah, mine's at a little over 2200 hours and um, I don't intend to do anything to it. And I got in trouble last month for admitting that I pulled some lifters just to see how the cam was.
2: Yeah, we we (laughs) chastised you for that. (laughs) But I
0: just had to know because I could save mine.
2: the technical term for that is morbid curiosity. <laughs> That's right.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but on yours, yeah, lapping that one valve and your engine, uh, yeah, I wouldn't touch that thing if I could get away with it.
2: Yeah, I would, I would try to lap the valve simply because if, if you let them pull the cylinder, that opens Pandora's box. They'll, they'll, they'll find some more reasons that they want you to euthanize the engine. So and and interestingly enough it's a lycoming and 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 unlike continental lycoming doesn't have any guidance about cam airworthiness continental has has some very specific instructions but lycoming doesn't which means that it's kind of up to the mechanic to decide whether the wh- whether the cam is is okay or not and that's a very bad situation because you never want it to be up to the mechanic especially because you know these mechanics obviously Are spring loaded to want this engine to get sent off somewhere. So,
1: well,
3: they're by the book.
1: Well, thank you very much.
3: Thank you. Thanks for calling, Pat. We really appreciate your question. Thanks
1: for the call, Pat. Sure.
0: Our next question is from Kirk, who's playing with gas. This sounds dangerous. What's up, Kirk? (laughs)
5: <laughs> Hi guys, I just want to first of all, I want to thank AOPA and for this AMP SDMP show. You guys just do a great job of helping GA pilots learn more about their aircraft and how they operate, and we're all going to be better and safer for that. So thank you very much. Thank you. So uh, I should predicate this by saying I have been trained by an AMP how to safely service my aircraft's oxygen system and. I always put my cigarette out before I do that. And, and you cigar. wash your hands. <laughs> and sorry, wipe the grease yeah. off my hands. Wipe hand. the
0: grease off. Mm-hmm. No, no, no ham sandwich grease on your fingers. No <laughs> <hand. laughs> right.
5: But seriously, as the aircraft owner uh, who doesn't hold an AMP certificate, am I allowed to refill my own oxygen system? I, I looked through 14 CFR 43 Appendix A, Subpart so C, which talks about preventative maintenance, and I don't see servicing an oxygen system listed in there but it's called preventative maintenance and i'm I'm being funny now but couldn't you argue that i'm preventing hypoxia (laughs) (laughs)
3: that's a good one that's good (laughs) i I buy that that.
2: (laughs) well i'll tackle this there's there's a couple of relevant things but let me address your question with a question are you allowed to add oil to your engine
0: i knew that's where you were going (laughs)
2: Are, are you allowed to? Are you allowed to fuel air the tires?
0: Put tire air in oh, your tires. Air. Okay, uh,
2: None of those things are on the list.
0: How about putting gas in the tires? Now, now yeah. th- there's there's
2: yeah. <laughs> there, there's really kind of a fundamental gap in the regs. The things I'm talking about, adding oil and adding fuel and that sort of thing, are, are things that we refer to as servicing the aircraft, as opposed to doing maintenance on the aircraft. And servicing is not a word that's defined anywhere in the regulations. If you look at the, the definitions in part one 1.1, 1. 1, there's it doesn't talk about servicing. The yeah, FAA seems to be silent on that subject. But but everybody knows that you're allowed to do it. And, and it doesn't rise to the level of something that, that we refer to as maintenance or preventive maintenance. It's a, it's a lower level thing than that. So I would view adding oxygen to your oxygen tank to be something essentially at the same level as adding fuel to your fuel tank or adding oil to your, well, sump <laughs> or tank, whichever you have. Now, if you did classify it as, as preventive maintenance, then you have a little cover from something called the Khalil interpretation, which is where about 10 years ago, the FAA regulatory lawyers came out with a, with an interpretation. It was actually written by my buddy, Skip Averman, who is our friend at the FAA. I hope he never retires (laughs) (laughs) because he's so his, all of his interpretations are so wonderful. Paul and I have had the occasion to deal with him, but uh, that basically said, even though part 43, Appendix A, subpart C, says that the only things that are considered to preventive maintenance are these 43 items. And even though there's an advisory circular that says the same thing, but even in stronger language, it ain't true. (laughs) He said there are lots of things that the FAA would consider preventive maintenance that aren't on the list. And he said that's particularly true for small general aviation airplanes. So that really opened the door that said, you know, it, it, those 43 items are not exhaustive. They're exemplary and other things that are comparable to those 43 items would also be considered a preventive maintenance by the FAA. And the Khalil decision was triggered by specifically by the request from the general manager of Bombardier's Learjet division, and the question he was posing to the FAA was, "Can a pilot put air in the tires of a particular model Learjet that has very high pressure tires? Because that Learjet has a requirement. No, actually, it was could he check the pressure in the tire Check
3: it, not the because there, it. there's
2: a, there's an airworthiness limitation on that particular model Learjet that said the tire pressure has to be checked every day." And so the question was: Do do we really need to get a mechanic to do that, or can a pilot do that? And the answer was: If the airplane's being operated as Part 91 airplane, as opposed to a Part 135 airplane, then a pilot can do it, even though it's not on the list. And that that was the FAA deemed that to be a preventive maintenance item. But Skip went much further than that when he wrote the Khalil decision. He, He didn't just say yeah, it's okay to check air uh, tire pressure. He said there's lots of things that the FAA would consider preventive maintenance, even though it's not on the list. And you should think of that list as being exemplary rather than exhaustive. But as far as adding oxygen, I I don't even think that we would need to consider preventive maintenance. I think we would consider servicing, like adding fuel or adding oil. that That doesn't have to be on any list. Great. So well, my Kurt, conscience feels much better now when I. Start so there, there's two different reasons that it's okay. <laughs> Thanks again. I really appreciate all of you guys and what you do and AOPA. Thank you.
3: Thanks a lot. Yep. Our next question is from Robbie, who doesn't believe his gauges. Go ahead, Robbie.
6: Yeah, so thank you, and uh, that's mm-hmm. probably pretty accurate. So, uh, first of all, thanks, guys. I binge listened to your to all of the Ask the ANP podcasts about a month ago before I sent in this question. So, oh, hey, gosh. we really appreciate all the at help. once. <laughs> I, well Jing. you know, I, I, every day walking for an hour, I listen to one of them. Oh, wow, cool. So, I I appreciate the, the all the work you guys do. But I have a uh, 1980 Cicada TB10. I got it to. Uh, just a little under two years ago in February of 2021. It currently only has the uh, factory single probe engine gauges. Um, I'm actually waiting for parts to arrive. uh, Well, they've arrived and they're waiting for the installation of a GI-275 engine monitor. Oh, very
2: nice. Yeah, very nice. You said that to fend off the lecture, right? <laughs> I did, that's
3: exactly right. <laughs> <Good job. laughs> it totally did. He's not really getting one. He's uh, yeah.
6: uh, it is yeah. true. It is true. Actually, in the shop now. Uh, my, my problem is that even with the uh, significant efforts to manage the temperature on climb out, uh, the most likely unreliable CHT gauge uh, reads close to 500 Ooh. and uh, rarely drops below 425 And this is an O360, just for those who may not be familiar with the type. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are no other signs of trouble that I can see. Uh, It's been this way since I purchased the airplane. But I have to admit that I actually didn't notice it in the beginning because I was not accustomed to flying an airplane with these gauges in it. And so I I noticed it in some videos that I took later after I, I, (laughs) I, I saw it. And I thought, hmm, I wonder what, this This looks high, I should check it. And then I went back and checked some in-cockpit videos I'd taken, and pretty much every time on climb out, it does this. So my mechanic suggests that it's highly improbable that the temps are actually as high as the gauge is reading. Um, and that he suggests that one possible cause is that the cable to the probe was at some point, at some point replaced with the wrong type. So I've continued flying and trying to manage temperatures best I can, trying to comfort myself that maybe I just have an erroneous reading, <laughs> um, you know, flying over water to Norway, things like that. Oh. You know.
0: Wow. <laughs> You're
3: know, so, uh, you kidding. <laughs>
0: wow. And so is that, is that working for you so far? You, <laughs> you
6: feel good about it? That's called green framing. It's, it's called, uh, it's called this is why I'm calling you guys, mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, I also purchased some temperature stickers that I placed in various spots in the engine compartment, even though I recognize these are unlikely to give me any useful information, which has proven to be true. They don't even reach the scale hmm. that, uh, that I've placed them in. So my question is whether there's any way to gain confidence that the CHTs are reasonable while waiting for the installation. Of course, at this point, there's not much waiting left to do but uh, thinking possibly other indications of trouble. And I did send over the boroscope uh, images that I took, although it was my first time ever doing a boroscope of cylinders. So I, I have no idea how, how good my images are. But that's my question.
3: Do, uh, do you smell anything when it goes to 500? You know, smell oil burning? Because I've had my CHTs passing 420 and I can smell something. In my cockpit now, the, it might be better sealed on a newer airplane than my. But
0: it, it all burned off the first time it happened. No, I mean, you smell it after that. It's all been cooked smell, off. I can smell.
3: I can smell when the engine gets hot. Yeah, so yeah, that would be an definitely. indication.
2: I, I wish I knew what, how the factory, CHT gauge, what kind of uh, probe it uses because there are two different kinds of of probes that are used for cht and they're they're it's not the spark plug probe if that's what you mean it's no it's not really what i was getting at it was that there are are thermistor type probes there's another more proper word for that but it's a a variable resistor kind of probe and then there are thermocouple probes which generate uh, generate millivolt and the if it's a thermistor type probe it doesn't really care what what kind of wire you used, but it does care a lot about resistance if there's any if there's any additional resistance, the thing will read high because the thermistor probe is is a probe whose resistance varies with temperature, and so uh, effectively what the gauge the gauge is an ohmeter effectively but the the kinds of probes that most uh, digital engine monitors use are, are thermocouple probes which generate uh, millivoltage and so if there if there was any resistor they they do care quite a bit about what kind of wire you use and if there was any resistance in the system you'd get a lower than correct reading not a higher than correct reading because the the meter in the cockpit effectively would be a voltmeter or a millivoltmeter meter uh, right. rather than an ohm meter so
3: Mike we just had a question um for another client that had um like unexpectedly high CHTs and Joe Godfrey who's our lead savvy analysis person asked about the ground on the engine potentially causing that it, would that be something to check that he's got a good ground or would is there um, even a ground on a, a single well, probe return,
2: yeah. it, de- it depends whether the probe is a, is a, a, a grounded yeah. type probe or not yeah the ground is significant
3: i'd find it hard to believe that somebody would install the incorrect wires to the probe i mean well in the
0: in almost in all the cessnas and pipers it's the resistive type probe and it it screws in and there's one wire attached to it
2: it uses the engine ground as the
0: yeah the engine is the ground return yeah so if there's a bad ground for the engine you get basically high resistance Uh, But where the wire screws on to the probe, it's a little bitty post. And very few people have a small enough wrench to hold the backup nut so that when they're tightening the wire to on this little post, the entire post will turn because they, they put too much torque on it. And this post is in like a ceramic centerpiece. And once that moves, you're gonna get all kinds of strange readings from time to time. We've actually had success in a desperate attempt, because you almost can't find these anymore for some of the older airplanes, we'll glob a bunch of RTV or something around that post where the terminal attaches just to stabilize it so it doesn't vibrate. And and often we'll get uh, usable CHT readings, uh, at least long enough for someone to go buy a proper engine monitor and,
2: <laughs> and put it in. Yeah, I'm looking at all these pictures as they're flashing by, and the pictures all look normal. the 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 one picture that I, I I wish I could see is a picture of the probe itself. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Right. I don't that'd think be the that one thing, thing to that, know.
3: But these are the these things. are super sharp pictures. Nice yeah, job. Yeah, yeah good they're job. Very nice. They're Holy very nice Holy cow! Looking, looking and everything looks nice and
2: clean. Valves are I
6: watched so. three or four YouTube videos to <laughs> get
2: myself
3: Yeah, again. you're
0: the, you're shot underneath the valve, seeing the valve stem. That's a very difficult shot to get. That's beautiful. Nice no, job. That's yeah. really it's like
3: nice. artwork.
2: <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. But I guess the, the only suggestion I would make would be to accelerate the schedule on which you're going to install the DIT. <laughs> right. <which> <laughs> yeah. I, I pick it
6: up next week.
2: Oh, well, exciting. You're going to oh, okay. learn
6: everything the first time you fly it yeah. next week. I'm sure that's true. Yeah. And also oil analysis. I've done oil analysis, which is all normal.
0: Even with this uh, 275, The Garmin basically uses everybody else's probes. Everybody uses Alcor probes and all that. Uh, I would suggest, just as a matter of um, routine, is be sure you have a good ground return on the engine. Have your people check that. Make sure it's in place and in good shape, not oxidized. Not I presume that
6: on the I presume yep. that if they uh, when they were doing the installation, that's something they would look at.
0: I would not presume probably, that at all. Probably Sometimes not they, unless you yeah. specifically
6: yeah. call it out. Uh, right. Th- w-
2: and what we're talking about is is the big, the big nasty looking grounding yes. strap. It's, <laughs> right. That goes from the from from the crankcase uh, to the firewall, typically. That grounds the the engine to the airframe.
0: Usually on on an. American airplane, American on American airplane, it'd be a braided strap. I'm, I'm not sure yeah. what they use. Oh, it's,
2: it's almost certainly a braided strap. Yeah, and it's well, everything it's,
6: forward of the firewall is basically it, American.
2: It, it's typically it's typically installed correctly when the airplane is built, and then it's mm-hmm. typically Never screwed taken up apart. when, the, when <laughs> the engine is changed. Right. Uh, so.
3: And, and, you know, Robbie, going back to, is it really hitting 500? Um, I wasn't kidding when I said you would smell it, but in addition to that, yeah, we just had another caller that showed us a 20 or 30 degree rise in CHTs and the, the oil temperature also went up. If you were yeah. going to 500, no, no, no indications in like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And also I, I think that, I think that when lycoming cylinders are running at 500 degrees i think, I think change, the paint changes it color, changes color yeah. right yeah. that's right
0: yeah, that's true
6: that's exactly my mechanic basically said all these same things which is yeah. that there oh, should okay. be other second well then you, and you probably mechanisms. have a pretty smart mechanic yeah we like your <laughs> <Yeah>. mechanic <laughs> he's actually very good i'm very yeah. happy with him all
3: right well well make sure and wear your poopy suit when you're crossing the north atlantic please <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or the north sea or wherever it sounds awfully cold <laughs> Great question. Well,
2: so, so it sounds like most likely your CHT isn't really five hundred. And I think
3: that's probably but do, true. But do
2: put that. Do put that GI two seventy five yeah. in. It may. It will probably be eye opening.
3: Yeah. Good. Excellent. I
2: I, I know when i when I first put an engine monitor in my airplane, it it changed a lot of things about how I operated the engine. I didn't look out that, the
3: window. To have actual <laughs>
6: data. I've been in software engineering for 25 years, so the lack of data is killing me. I, oh, you're yeah, going to geek like, out.
3: Totally agree. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you're going to like it a lot. All right. Good. Okay. Well, thank you so much for the question.
0: Yep. Thanks, Robbie. Right. Bye bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Take care. Now we've come to the winter section of our show. I didn't know we had a winter section, so this is a new thing. Our next question is from Will, whose cylinders need a blanket. Will, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And I guess my only critique of your show is that you guys don't put out more episodes, but I know that y'all have lives, <laughs> that <you> have to, <laughs> other th- other things you have to do. So I fly a 1965 a PA-24-260 Comanche. I put a remanufactured engine in it back in 2020 after I had a catastrophic failure uh, in North Carolina. And when I did it, I followed Mike's advice. I put in a CGR-30 P&C combo, so I have a you know fully functioning engine monitor with more features than I could possibly ever want. And so normally oh, I no, fly no. an objection.
0: There's, no, there's not too many features on an it's engine It's a monitor. nice unit. I yeah. looked it yeah, up. It it's beautiful. Nice. <laughs> yeah.
4: I do love it. I do love it. I normally fly out of Jessup, Georgia, where it's normally warm to extremely hot. So the cylinders are, I'm used to seeing around 275 to, I would say, 325. And I, I recently put a new set of front baffles on it to help the temperatures even a little bit, a little bit more. <laughs> but the, it, as, it start, as I get into the winter months, where it gets to, down into the frigid temperatures of, like, in the 30s in Georgia, the, the CGR alerts when I get into the into the 190s. And so oh, wow. On, on long descents i'm seeing like you know the 190 is a little bit and i'll just increase power a little bit and bring it back up above 200 and i went so far as to contact Wycoming who said as long as you stay above 150 you're you're fine wow but i recently took a trip to upstate (laughs) upstate new york where the oat was negative 17 degrees celsius
5: oh
0: my and i had a
4: long descent and it you should never was, uh, have made
0: that trip. That was a bad decision. I know.
4: My parents, my parents live up there, so I gotta, I gotta make it every now. No, uh, yeah. But it's uh it's nice to climb out of a, uh, you know, cold weather like that, as opposed to yeah. high density altitudes you get here in Georgia. But I had a really long descent going in there, and it was pretty choppy, updrafts and downdrafts. So I'm, you know, exercising the the power to manage my airspeed, and the CHCs are dropping and dropping and dropping. And they eventually get into even the high 140s, and so wow. Wow. I'm getting beyond the point of where Lycoming is saying, uh, you know, is the is the safe zone. And I know that the probes are working right because they're registering the correct OAT when I'm sitting on the ground mm-hmm. uh, before I turn it on. But my question is, is you know, there's there's tons of information out there about you know keeping CHTs, you know, below you know, Lycoming says for, I know Mike says 400 is kind of like the standard for, I guess, 450 for Lycoming, 400 for Continental, but there's really not a ton of information out there about, you know, CHTs, what is too low. And I didn't, I I will say I didn't notice anything abnormal about the oil temperatures and I didn't uh, notice any degradation in performance. And I've flown the plane since, you know, probably half a dozen times without any issues. So Hmm. the the question is, is what what damage, if any, is being done if you go below two hundred, and then what if any is go damage is being done if you go below one hundred fifty degrees?
0: Well, let me ask real quick. so you have the the electronics international uh, system in there is it's installed as primary, so you have all the the cht probes that screw into the bottom of the cylinder
4: yeah it's the it's the primary okay. en- engine instrumentation everything else has been removed
0: okay, okay. But um, they're the screw-in type. They're the not, screw-in type. Not There's a gasket Not type. a gasket on the spark plugs or something.
4: The, they're the screw-in kind. Okay. I don't so know have seen
0: an engine run that low, except for maybe Adrian's engine when he flew over the poles. <laughs> Just, you know.
2: Does the Comanche 260 have cal flaps? <laughs> it does not. No. It does not
0: have cal flaps. No. So this is a 65, so that's the first B model, right? You have three windows or two?
4: It's the straight 260. So they took a 250 right. and just made it injected, right. and But it, it only yeah, has yeah. two windows on the side.
0: It's the only year of the 260 with only two windows on the side. I used to have a, a Comanche for about 13 years. I don't know that I've ever seen one run that cold.
3: And it's not an oil temperature issue? You said the t- oil temperatures are when above 180, 180, maybe? What are
0: they doing? 180, 200?
4: So if I, I got I to... Gotta, pull the data and I haven't unfortunately haven't done that but I would say you have not pulled the data yet what's your
3: end number no wait
4: don't (laughs) tell us (laughs) I'll look you up (laughs) yeah
3: you need to pull the data
4: yeah I would estimate that the oil temperatures were not at 180 I think they were around like 160 to 170 at the time
3: so could he add a winterization kit and block that oil cooler to bring them up? Would that well, help? Well, that
4: would bring oil temp up, but
0: it's not going to do anything for the CHTs.
3: Well, but won't that help the engine run warmer because the oil that's bathing it is well, bathing it, I think it, it would know, help the engine.
0: It. <laughs> it wouldn't do anything to change the CHTs. So the, the cowling on the Comanche is the inlet, air inlet is huge, and there's not... Uh, a thing that isolates the spinner, like on the newer ones. So when the air comes in the sides, goes around the cylinders, it comes back forward over the top of the crankcase and spills out uh, at the spinner, or that's one of the possibilities. And usually the loss there is so much that CHTs, or at least my experience it was always that CHTs were in the easily in the 300s and in the summer would be 380 or so and usually have one that's Barely topping four hundred. I've never had a problem with cylinders being overly cool. So, I think you should take some of your baffling out. No, 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 don't do that. I'm just teasing. Don't don't do that.
3: <laughs> so, but let let's talk about what the issue is with being cold, isn't yeah. it? Uh, lead scavenging. The, you know, there's, issue? there's
2: there, well, there's there, there's two different scenarios. The the cylinder could be running cold because it's running at low power, for example or it's being being lean, either excessively rich or excessively lean. Or it could be running cold, even though it's, it's being operated properly and at, at fairly high power. Now, if it's, if, if it's a high power situation, the, the concern is the cylinder may be running cold because the OAT is very cold, but the piston is running hot because it, it's not air-cooled. And if the cylinder is cold and the piston is hot, you get inadequate clearance between the the piston and the cylinder, and and you start getting piston skirts scuffing and 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 vertical scoring on the cylinder walls and stuff like that. And I think that's the basis of Lycoming's recommendation that CHTs not not go below one hundred and fifty. Obviously, CHTs go below one hundred and fifty when you throttle back, but that's okay because. You're cooling down the piston and you're cooling down the cylinder. And so everything is, is still going to be okay. How do you lean this engine as a rule?
4: So I usually, we, I usually operate lean of peak. I've watched all of your, all of your webinars and all the and researched that to my satisfaction to operate lean of peak. Now, on this specific descent, I was dealing with a lot of updrafts and downdrafts. So it was requiring me to exercise the power more. So I was, I was actually full rich during this descent.
2: Okay. Well, that's probably oh, a big yeah. part of the problem. There's no reason to, to go rich on a descent like that. You do normally have to rich in a little bit as you descend, but if, if you don't rich in enough, the engine will remind you <laughs> by running rough. <laughs> and uh, so th- there's, there's, there's no reason to be going full rich. And if you're having low cylinder head temperatures uh, in cruise, when you're running lean to peak, you, you probably should be running a little less lean to peak. To bring the temperatures up
0: yeah make more power go faster
4: oh know i try to take it as fast as it'll go but it's go usually faster. uh <laughs> yeah, it's usually not a problem in in cruise it's usually when i'm when i'm descending from like nine thousand feet oh, is when yeah. it becomes yeah,
2: it's, it's it sounds like you're enriching inappropriately during during uh descents which is gonna is gonna make the problem worse
0: so when you climb do you lean as you climb to maintain an egt
4: I don't, not as I climb. Oh, I leave it full well, and then
0: it's- assume- No, let's, so let's change everything. So in your climb, when you take off, I assume you've done gaming lean test and all that sort of thing to see what the balance is on your cylinders. Uh, now that you have this wonderful, oh no, you haven't done that because you haven't downloaded your data yet. Oh jeez, so Sorry.
4: Cruel. I've done oh. it just not for that flight.
0: <laughs> okay. There you go. <laughs> no, okay, okay. I'll let you off the hook this time. Anyway, so in a climb, You take off and somewhere when you're not terribly busy, maybe 500 to thousand feet, note your EGTs, maybe 1,250, depends on where they mounted the probes. Hopefully they mounted them in a place where you're getting about 1,250 degrees, maybe 1,300. Pick one and then as you continue to climb, you lean the mixture to maintain that EGT. That'll keep your fuel error ratio the same as it was at takeoff. You'll use less fuel for the climb You'll make more power because that full rich is just throwing unburned fuel out the exhaust. It's no value to you at all. So lean as you climb, maintaining that EGT all the way to 9,000. When you descend, you can basically do the same thing in the descent. As long as you're not asking the engine for more power than what you had at 9,000 feet or 10 or 12 or 8, 6, whatever it is, then you just Enriching to keep about that same mixture. And you don't need to manipulate the throttle in your descent because just let it go fast. Now, if you need to slow down for turbulence, just pull the power back to some setting and then begin enriching from there. So, absolutely, you want to lean in the climb and enrich in the descent, but not full rich. That's
2: yeah. I, I want to I throw in a cautionary note here because Paul quoted some EGT numbers. <laughs> and and i'm afraid some listener is going to say oh right. i need to i didn't oh, no, maintain 1250 no. no the egt that you're going to see is uh dramatically dependent on the compression ratio of the engine so if you're flying a, a cessna 182 with an 0470r you're going to see much hotter ch uh, egt's than what paul was quoting because if, uh the 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 EGTs that he was quoting it would be appropriate for a high compression engine, but not for low compression engine.
3: Well, it also depends on where the EGT probe is uh, installed. Sure,
0: exactly. And, and it,
2: that's what I said
0: about the mounting of the probe. So let me back up and see if I can say it correctly, because if I don't get this right, Colleen accuses me of getting stuff wrong at the end I'm of the listening.
7: show.
3: I'm <laughs> listening. <laughs> we're recording yeah, this, Paul. <laughs> yeah, no, It's all it's,
0: you, speaking to my lapel. Yeah. <laughs> what I should have said when you get to that 500 or a thousand foot range after takeoff, note what your EGT is. That's your target EGT, whatever number it is. If it's 1100, 1200, 1300, if you have normalized mode, you can hit that button and then all of your EGTs will stray from that number. You don't really care what the number is because it's not a real number anyway. And you just, you're just trying to maintain, and it's, you don't have to be exact, just generally lean as you climb to keep something close to that. It'll give you something to do in that long climb.
3: And don't go to New York in the winter. And don't go forward in <laughs> descent, please.
0: Yeah, don't do that, absolutely. John, good, good to hear. You.
4: Know. Thank you so much for, I, I appreciate all the help. It's a, it's a lovely plan. You now, hopefully, yeah. I don't have any more engine failures that, that take it away from me. <laughs>
3: Yeah, let's don't do that. <laughs> oh, we didn't hear that story. That's for next time. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's a good story there. <laughs> okay, well Thanks be for safe. The
4: call. <laughs> right, well, thank yeah. you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Will. Thanks. See Will. you Will.
0: All right,
3: bye bye. Our next question is from Carl, who might be the only pilot who has ever worried about too much power. Go ahead, Carl. <laughs> <laughs>
7: Okay, I fly a Cherokee 180, built in 1967, and a few years ago I had the engine rebuilt. So I'm very concerned of making it last. And part of my strategy is to try to use the airplane regularly. My target has been using it at least once a month. And I try to keep that schedule even in the wintertime. And there's one aspect of winter flying which worries me a little bit, which I've never seen discussed, so I thought I would bring it up here. Uh, That is, I live on the East Coast and low altitude, but still gets pretty cold. And when I check the weather and check the pressure altitude, usually it's negative in the wintertime, 1,000 feet, sometimes even 2,000 feet below sea level. Now, my understanding was that the carburetor is calibrated for sea level operation. It would seem like as I get more and more power, at some point, I might not be getting enough fuel for correct operation. So I'm wondering if, if you ever heard of any engine damage attributed to very low pressure altitude operation.
0: I have never seen There's not anything in the POHs. I did have a, saw someone post on a, with a 210 in Florida that they had to pull the throttle back on takeoff once because they had too much manifold pressure. And I said, so how did you base that? There's not a maximum manifold pressure listed anywhere in the POH.
3: Yeah. Man. It, it's more fuel flow is important, right? It's like being turbocharged almost.
2: I don't think it's an issue. The, the, it, it is true that at very cold temperatures with a carbureted engine the mixture is going to be a little bit leaner than than it would be at at sea level and that will cut into your detonation margin a little bit but the takeoff mixture is so god awful rich and detonation never happens un- unless cold. you have quite high cylinder <laughs> yeah. temperatures yeah so it, I, I, just don't, I just don't think it's an issue, and I don't think it's the kind of thing that we, where you should consider using less than full throttle for takeoff or anything like that. Let her rip.
3: I mean, theoretically, your thinking is correct that the carburetor and the enrichment circuit in the carburetor are calibrated for sea level, but I think what we're trying to say is the cold temperatures and the couple thousand feet that you might see in very extreme conditions. Isn't enough to really eat into that detonation margin enough to be concerned, but theoretically, you're thinking be- along the right you, lines <laughs> because you
2: have a ton of detonation margin. You know, now if if you'd installed ten to one pistons in there or something like that, it might be more of a concern. But if it's a normal, certificated engine, the amount of detonation margin that you have uh, at takeoff power with a full rich mixture is so large that cutting into it a little bit because it's cold is not going to be significant.
0: You know, I can't imagine before we had engine monitors nobody would have ever thought of this. It's like and and everyone at takeoff is wide open throttle and most like Cherokee's and 172s don't even have a manifold pressure gauge, so they have no clue uh, what that manifold pressure is doing. So I, I think if it had been a problem We'd have cylinders coming off of engines over the last, you know, 70 years at a much higher rate uh, in the winter than what we do now. I
3: don't know. With global warming, temperatures are in much more extreme. So <laughs> that's the problem
7: now. It was a cold winter. It was really cold. It was cold. a cold winter. No, I do not have any real instrumentation. That's the reason I was interested in what I need to be concerned about. That's a great question, though. Your
3: thinking is right on, Carl, but I think it's just not a concern. It it actually doesn't end up being any kind of detonation issue for the engine we're talking about. Yeah. Totally. But I applaud
7: you for following through on the physics there. (laughs) 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 Okay, well, that's reassuring. It's one less
3: thing to worry about. That's right. Yeah, Absolutely. And hopefully spring will be right around the corner and the temperatures will go back <laughs> up.
0: <laughs> but you won't have all that performance.
3: Although
7: I do have one limitation. I do not start the engine unless it's 32 yeah. degrees or more.
3: Yeah, that's, or, or even more. Yeah. Yeah, we, we hear you there. Well, okay, thanks. well.
2: Thanks for a great question.
3: Great thought process, Carl. We, we really appreciate the question. It made us uh, cogitate a little bit. There was smoke rising <laughs> Co- out of Paul's. Cog- uh, cogitate? Cogitate. Oh, man, I have to go look <laughs> up another word. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ruminate, ruminate. <laughs> Jeez. Is this okay, thank show? you. Thanks, Carl. <clears throat> Thanks, Carl. Well, it looks like we've made it through another podcast. We count on you, our listeners, to let us know what we got right and, more importantly, what we got wrong. We always enjoy hearing from you. Please keep sending us those tricky mind benders and maybe we'll host your question on the next show. You can always write us at podcasts at aopa.org. See ya.
2: Bye, everybody.